and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkley Foundation for Journalism. Every few weeks we share discussions about the craft and importance of journalism in Australia and the world, often recorded at our events. You're about to hear a panel discussion from our recent Walkley Fund for Journalism dinner in Sydney. This was our big fundraising event for the year, and we wanted the audience to really feel the impact that great journalism can have by featuring some of our Walkley award-winning journalists talking about their work. They'll take you behind the scenes of some of their biggest stories and explain the difference that that work can make to our nation and our people. Between these journalists, there's a long roll call of honours and achievements, and you'll hear these explained in more detail, first by the MC Samantha Armitage, and then by panel moderator Emma Alberici. This talk was recorded at the Ivy Ballroom in Sydney on the 5th of April 2019. A word of warning, if you've got kids listening or you don't enjoy the F word, there's some colourful language in this discussion. Now it is my great pleasure now to invite an amazing panel of journalists to the stage. All our panellists are Walkley winners and all are living proof of the powerful impact journalism has on individuals, communities and our country as a whole. Tonight honours the impact of Australia's most groundbreaking, brave and dogged reporting and to give you an insight into the problem solving, quick thinking and perseverance that go into Walkley Award winning journalism, please welcome to the stage Gold Walkley winner Joanne McCarthy, Gold Walkley winner Caro Meldrum Hanna, Walkley Book Award winner Helen Pitt, Walkley winner Mark Burrows, and two time Gold Walkley winner Hedley Thomas. Now, stepping into the moderator's role, Peter Van Onselen is staying in Canberra. He's not leaving his post just in case the election's called in the next hour. So he's not here tonight. So a huge thank you to Emma Alberici, who has stepped in. I know you all know Emma, but just a little bit of introduction. She's the ABC's chief economics correspondent. Over her distinguished career, she spent 16 years at the ABC, started her career at News Limited's Herald Sun newspaper, then worked at the Nine Network for 10 years, Business Sunday, A Current Affair and Today. Emma moved to the ABC in 2002 to present Business Breakfast. She's since been at the 7.30 report for the finance editor, senior reporter across TV, radio and online, and a stint as the Europe correspondent. She's been a finalist three times in the Walkley Awards. She has judged and in 2013 she hosted the Walkley Awards ceremony. It's making me tired just talking about it all, Emma. Over to you. Enjoy. Thank you very much, Sam. And now let me introduce our incredibly esteemed panel. I have next to Headley here, Mark Burrows, who's the senior correspondent at Nine News. During his career, Mark's been fortunate to have had a box seat to many history-making stories. He spent nearly six years as Nine's US correspondent covering two presidential elections, the LA riots and earthquakes. He reported on the Oklahoma City bomb attack and the Branch Davidian shootout in Waco, Texas. In 97, Mark was posted to Nine's London Bureau. He covered the death of Princess Diana, the Iraq War, Kosovo and fugitive Christopher Scase on the island of Mallorca. We both did. We both did, indeed. In 1999, Mark earned a Walkley Award for his reporting of the Interlaken Canyon disaster in Switzerland. 
For more than a decade now, he's reported extensively across Southeast Asia. In 2002, he led Nine's coverage of the Bali bombings. His interviews with victims and the bombers earned Nine a Walkley Award and a Logie for outstanding news coverage. He later secured the first interview with convicted drug smuggler Chappelle Corby. He's been to Afghanistan three times. <laughs> Embedded with Australian soldiers in 2010 and 2011. Welcome, Mark Burrows. Thanks, sir. Right at the end to my left is Joanne McCarthy. She's the Newcastle Herald journalist whose extensive coverage of institutional child sexual abuse played a significant part in the establishment of the New South Wales Special Commission of Inquiry and indeed the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. Her campaigning reporting has won her the Graham Perkin Award for Journalist of the Year in 2012, the Gold Kennedy Award for New South Wales Journalist of the Year, and of course the Gold Walkley in 2013, and the Sir Owen Dixon Chambers Law Reporting of the Year Award in 2013 as well. In 2015, she received an honorary doctorate from the University of Newcastle for her work exposing child sexual abuse in the Hunter region. Joanne was raised and still lives in the central coast of New South Wales. She's proudly remained a regional journalist for nearly four decades. She's a three-time Walkley Award winner, including, as I said, the 2013 Gold Walkley. Joanne McCarthy, welcome. <laughs> At this rate, I'm gonna take the whole 45 minutes <laughs> introducing, but I think it's worthwhile. Caro Meldrum Hanna, who's sitting next to Joanne, is a five-time Walkley winning investigative journalist. Thank you very much. <laughs> Most recently, she's credited as the creator of the ABC's new investigative documentary series, Exposed, the case of Kelly Lane. Mm -hmm. Caro has exposed crime, corruption and misdeeds across sport, business and government, has sparked multiple government inquiries and royal commissions and she strives to pioneer new ways to investigate and tell her stories. She's amassed a swag of international and national awards for her groundbreaking investigations, just to make us all feel a little small, including the 2015 Gold Walkley and the Walkley Award for Investigative Journalism for exposing the illegal practice of live baiting in greyhound racing. In 2017, she won the Melbourne Press Club Journalist of the Year Award and the Logie for the Four Corners Report, Australia's Shame, about the treatment of children as young as 10 at the Dondale Youth Detention Centre in the Northern Territory. <laughs> Caro Meldrum, Hannah, welcome. Helen Pitt, sitting next to Caro, is with the Sydney Morning Herald. She began her career in 1986 at the Sydney Morning Herald, where she is still currently a senior writer and has also been opinion and letters editor. She worked as a feature writer for the Bulletin magazine in California for New York Times Digital and as a television reporter at Euronews in France. In 2018, she won the Walkley Book Award for her exceptional book, the House, which captures the extraordinary history and construction of the Sydney Opera House in forensic detail. She told the story through the eyes of the schools of journalists who covered the saga. She spoke to former reporters in an effort to reconstruct the Sydney Morning Herald newsroom that broke the news to the architect Jan Utzen in 1957 that he had indeed won the international design competition. 
Welcome, Helen Peters. And last but not least, to give you all context for this conversation, Hedley Thomas, who is a journalist with the Australian newspaper. Hedley began his career in newspapers at 17 as a copy boy at the Gold Coast Bulletin. He was a foreign correspondent in London and spent six years at Hong Kong's South China Morning Post before returning to Queensland in 1999. His mantelpiece boasts seven Walkley Awards, including two gold Walkley Awards. He's only the second person in history to have won the gold twice. The other person was, of course, the brilliant legendary cartoonist Ron Tanberg, who sadly passed away last year. Headley won the 2018 Gold Walkley for his investigative podcast, The Teacher's Pet, which explores the disappearance of Sydney mother Lynn Dawson. The Teacher's Pet has been downloaded more than 27 million times. Sorry, that was fake news. It's 43 million. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Who's counting? It's the only Australian podcast to go to number one in the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada and New Zealand. I think worth pointing out from a news organisation that previously only did newspapers. Thomas found files he was told had been destroyed and persuaded new witnesses to talk. The teacher's pet triggered a broader public campaign for justice for Lynn and as we'll soon discover, much more than that. So please welcome Hedley Thomas. So we've almost run out of time. <laughs> Let me start with the story behind the story and I thought I might start this one with you, Caro. To attention, yes. <laughs> and I want to talk about the live baiting story, the greyhound racing story. Tell us how you came to that and where the story took you. I didn't come to it, it came to me. It actually came to Four Corners. And it all began with one woman who was a greyhound dog rescuer. She entered a property in Churchable in Queensland and it was a training track and the hairs on the back of her neck stood up, just instinct took over, and she came back from this property and said to a couple of her colleagues, that place smells like death. She then got in touch with some animal rights activists and investigators, cameras were placed at a property, and boom, as soon as these cameras flicked on, live baiting was captured. It was illegal, it was always rumoured to occur, but it, it had never been caught. So this material came to us at Four Corners, and we assessed it and thought, okay, I'd never seen anything like it, I didn't understand it, and I certainly didn't know much about greyhound racing at all. It was then, from that point onwards, we decided, okay, let's take over this investigation ourselves and see how widespread this could possibly be. And it ended up being, across the country, hundreds of hours of surveillance. I remember I, I almost wet my pants one day, hiding. <laughs> I was in some bushes across from a track, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for this person to turn up really was very close to losing my bladder. How long were you there? Those of us who've been on a stakeout understand. Crazy. It was 14 hours or something. On and off. There was another night. One thing pops into my mind. This is how sometimes you go so deep that you never, ever stop. I was at another property in Queensland. It was about 2 in the morning and we were trying to uncover this mass greyhound grave. There were apparently these graves everywhere. 
And I remember it was about 3 a.m. I completely lost any aspect of where I was. It was pitch black and I was down in the dirt, digging through the dirt, and up came the skulls and the oh. rib bones and the and et cetera, et cetera. And I was putting them in my bag and I, I got up and... You're putting them in your handbag? Putting them in my... Well, it was a satchel. It wasn't one of our nice handbags. And popped them in. Glad we cleared that up. And I stood up <laughs> and I heard this... This bloke that we'd been told about, who had an adjoining property, is a bit gun happy. And he's very defensive of his property. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. I think we're just going to be blown away here. So I froze. The cameraman who I was with froze as well. He was standing behind me. And he said, take her first. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, now this, this, well, this really is the end. And waited. There's, you know, twigs breaking, snapping in the darkness, desperately trying to figure out what's going on, waiting for this gun to go off. I thought it was a gun. And then I, the next thing I heard was... Oh. It was a horse <laughs> who was a little interested of what these two people were doing had come over and was watching us. Anyway, this is where investigations can take you sometimes into <laughs> some very unusual circumstances. But I was safe. It was just a horse. Did you keep oh, working with it? Absolutely. Okay, yes. sorry, we were just having a private Never chat. Him <laughs> she still kept working with the cameraman. She didn't sure. take it. <laughs> he said, oh, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it. <laughs> it wasn't an OH&S moment. <laughs> how long did that take, that story, to tell? How long did it take to put together and get From to go where? go to woe? Oh, several months. I can't quite put my finger on it now how many months, but several months. And there were lots of failures, lots of cameras that were dropping off trees and blown away and lots of hours lost. Painstaking process of, you know, actually trying to match faces in very grainy vision. That was incredibly difficult because if we got one of these people wrong, you're a live beta. You're engaging in criminal activity and we had that identification wrong. We were toast. Mm. So that was very stressful. I remember even the night before it went to air, I rang my executive producer, Sue Spencer, who was in the EP of Four Corners, just the most amazing executive producer. And I was really scared. And I said, I, I think I may have one of these people wrong. I'm doubting myself, Sue. I, 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 I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure. And she said to me, Caro, hold your nerve. And it was the best advice because we had done all the work. You know, we were solid. But you can doubt yourself right up to the very last moment, can't you? You can doubt yourself if, you, if you've got it right. So anyway, off it went and brought down a government, it seems, in New South we'll Wales. Get, we'll get back to that. Oh. Hedley Thomas, there was a bit of, oh, in the audience when I said from an organisation <coughs> that, that did only newspapers. I don't know why people are assuming I'm having a go at the Australian when I say that. Of course <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> no, indeed. It was extraordinary on so many levels. You're a newspaper journalist who's done a story that is exceptional, but you've chosen to do it in a medium that is unfamiliar to you entirely. And still is. Yeah. <laughs> Talk us through how that all came about. Yeah, I actually still don't know how it came about because um, in many ways the success of the story was an accident. I think the power of the story and the people who are intrinsic to the story, Lynn Dawson's family in particular... Give us just a little pricey for those who haven't mm. listened to it yet. 45-odd million have. If you haven't, yeah. don't feel left out. <laughs> 
Okay, so the story goes back to the early 80s and in Sydney on the northern beaches, one of the most beautiful parts of Australia. And I had grown up in Canberra and then on the Gold Coast, but my dad grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney and he taught me to surf and body surf off you know, DY and Narrabeen. And so I had this affectionate memory for the northern beaches. And in 1982, a very devoted and much loved young mother called Lynn Dawson just suddenly vanished from the lives of everybody who knew her and was never seen again. And she and Before had... you did this podcast, you'd actually reported on the story. That's right. And that happened in 82. And then 19 years after that occurred, I heard about the story as a result of an inquest that was unfolding in Sydney. At that time, I was living in Brisbane. I was a feature writer for the Courier-Mail. And you know, it was an unusual thing for a Brisbane journo to be reporting on potentially a... Um, a weekend uh, mag-type article about a Sydney story, but I, I was immediately attracted to the story because of the news reports that were coming out of the inquest and managed to twist the arm of the features editor to fund me to go to Sydney and try and report it. And I think part of it was because of the personal connection. I think that if you have a personal connection to a story, it helps. It doesn't necessarily make you a zealot, but you can become a more invested journalist and feel closer to the story. And I think because of my my dad's connection to the northern beaches, having grown up on the northern beaches, and just the, the elements of the story just struck me as so compelling. This woman who everybody said was the most dedicated mum and just vanishes against the backdrop of some incredible goings-on in her home and in the local school. And her husband wanted everyone to believe she'd left her children yeah. and her husband yeah. for no apparent reason. Yeah. And I need to be a little... Well, not a little. I need to be really careful and fair to Chris Dawson in this situation. I don't think that his legal defence team is going to bid for me for the boardroom auction <laughs> lunch. But um, maybe they will and put me under... Because as a result of your podcast, yeah. it's not too much of a leap to say he was arrested in December. I don't know how much of my podcast led to that, but a lot of people have that view. It was view. a coincidence. Yeah, but I'd also say that, you know, he has been charged. We have to afford him a presumption of innocence. But can I just go back to the, the mm. initial question? You're a newspaper journalist. Mm. What made you decide this was a podcast? Everybody had been talking about podcasting. My colleagues, including Dan Box and others, were going off and doing amazing things with podcasts. My dad had died and I wanted to do something that was really engrossing that would give me the ability to stay out of the office for as long as possible um, <laughs> and give me maximum autonomy. And also, it had to be a story. I know my boss, Nicholas Gray, is here. <laughs> Nicholas, it was for a good cause. But um, I also wanted to do a story that I felt I could make a difference in. And because this story had been with me for almost, well, since 2001 when I when I went down to the northern beaches, when I met a cop and I met Lynn's family and I reported on it then for the Courier Mail, I had kept the files all those years. I'd kept them in my home in a sealed container in the roof of the carport. So, you know, hopefully no one's breaking into my carport roof while I'm down here tonight looking for other files. But <laughs> I wanted to go back to it and, you know, I'm so glad I did because I felt that if I got a podcast going and people got engaged in it, it could actually draw out new witnesses and new evidence. We'll come back to a little bit about what it actually did draw out. Helen Pitt, your book, the process of getting to the book, 
was fascinating. You were living overseas at the time when you decided to write it. Mm. Talk us through how that came about and also, again, what was a bit like what Caro was talking about, what people might not necessarily understand or appreciate about exactly what's involved when you go deep into a story in the way you did. Well, like a lot of people here probably... I'm a Sydney sider, so when Jorn Utzon died, I was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge where I was living in San Francisco, and it struck me, as Headley said, this is a very personal story. That man's name is known by everyone that grew up in Sydney in that era, probably not so much outside of that. So when he died, and I, and I knew the narrative arc of that story, you know, Danish designer gets chosen by a committee in Sydney, comes to the other side of the world and builds this building that he never gets to see complete. I knew that's a really good story, isn't it? I wonder what really the background to the whole thing is. And so I immediately pitched my old boss, Richard Walsh, who was by then the consulting publisher at Allen & Unwin, but he'd been my boss at The Bulletin. And I knew that he was always just drawn to great Australian narratives. And I said to him, do you think that there's a room in the market for a narrative about the Utsun saga. I guess because I'd been in the States for a decade, I'd been really absorbing the narrative journalism there, you know, from Sebastian Junger and John Krakow into the thin air, all those sorts of books that I, I just really loved. They're old stories that perhaps people knew, but I knew that there would be a depth of information back in the Sydney Morning Herald files, as well as in the Sydney Morning Herald newsroom. So I pitched him the idea. He said, yeah, look, it's a really great idea. I'm sure he didn't think it would take me 10 years to deliver it at the time, but lots of things happened in my life at the time. But the great thing about pitching it to him was he happened to be very good friends with Lynn Utzon, who was Jorn's daughter. So he immediately got me in touch with the Utzon family. And so, again, one of those background stories when you do these sorts of long-form narratives is sometimes it takes a really long time to convince people to talk mm. to you. I took years to convince Lynn Utzon, Jorn's daughter, to talk to me because she was very, very shy. The whole family were very media shy because they'd been essentially chased out of the country because of their father's dispute with the New South Wales government. So those sorts of things took a really long time to bring the whole narrative together, as well as I'm sure a lot of you have read the New York Times piece about Rupert Murdoch in the last few days where I noticed that they spent six months on three continents interviewing 150 people. It was kind of like that for me. I added up just on the way here, that I probably would have spoken to over 200 people and would have read maybe over 20 clippings files. Those of you that are old newspaper journalists will remember very fondly the, the manila folder newspaper oh, clipping so files. Great. And they led me to many people. Some of you are in this room. Kerry O'Brien was a reporter at The Sun in 1971, predicted that the Opera House would never pay for itself, or the people that he reported on <laughs> predicted that. So it was so funny reading these things, thinking, oh my goodness, isn't that? Oh, wow. This is... So it was like piecing together a huge jigsaw puzzle, frankly. And, and Helen, something I, I read about you saying when you went through that very process is what you found on the other side of the well, newspaper pages. That was the thing. Pages. There is the difference between a digital repository like Trove and a Sydney Morning Herald's clipping file or the gold that I found, the two cardboard boxes that were completely forgotten in the ACP library when Rupert Murdoch bought 
Australian Consolidated Press, there were two boxes of Sydney Opera House files that did not get transferred to Holt Street. And these could have been forgotten. But when I asked the librarian where I'd worked, if they were there, she delivered these boxes. As I've said many times, I felt like I'd won the Sydney Opera House lottery because they hadn't been opened. So on the other side of the story sometimes was Normie Rowe returns to town or the weather was hot and blustery and they are the things that really drive narrative journalism, like setting the scene, not just the he said, she says, 400 word news story of the day, which were all great and helped construct my narrative, but it was quite often the other pieces of information plus the interviews with the journalists who were in their 80s and 90s that were still alive that I could track down, largely because I had worked at the Herald since 1986 on and off, and I knew a lot of people and knew who to call. Just ask George Richards, the column A editor, and he would get you in touch with anyone, essentially. So those sorts of things were really helpful in bringing this period of Sydney alive again. Joanne McCarthy. Emma. The, the very last thing. <laughs> The last time I said your name was in 2013 when I gave you the gold Walkley. Uh -huh. Julia Gillard, her last act as Prime Minister was to write you a letter of thanks. Yeah, which as a feminist is just so cool. I still, I still haven't put it up on the wall. I can't do it. I because just, you want to keep feeling it. No, I don't feel it. It's just sort of there's something I just, I don't know. As a woman, the first woman Prime Minister, it just, it still almost, it does choke me up, you know, it's just an extraordinary thing. Yeah. When did you first start writing about what was happening in the diocese you were a part of? Um, I was never actually part of I that mean, diocese. That yeah, you yeah. Were so I'm an outsider, which is important on this because I came from an area that was distant from the Hunter and I still don't live or work in the Hunter. It was just a man ringing up and, cut a long story short, he just rang up and asked why no media had reported on a particular priest, John Denham, having been convicted. And, and I just said, don't know, blah, blah, blah. Checked, he had been convicted, it hadn't been reported. Not through any conspiracy or anything. The trial just moved, I think, from Newcastle to Sydney and it wasn't followed and it was just one of those things. And not realising that in reporting, and I worked it in with another piece, I can't remember, that he'd been convicted. That just was a ticking time bomb because he's just been convicted, I think the 60-something or other victim, and it just flowed from there. It was an area that was ready in starting to write about it, that was the thing about child sexual abuse. It was secret, and then suddenly it wasn't secret. And then when you show that you're interested in following it, it just kept coming out. And then the following year, it was the death of a Monsignor, and he'd covered up for another notorious priest who is in jail again, and he's just been convicted again. They covered up for him, and it was so that early in the piece, 2007, I wasn't dealing with the perpetrators, I was dealing with the cover-up. And as somebody who was raised Catholic, a lot of it was like, this isn't what churches are about, this is just extraordinary. And then the 2008 was the, the World Youth Day, the Pope coming over. So there's just been elements along the way. I'm still writing about it, because there's still obviously a hell of a long way to go because the stupid bloody Pope you know, the, it's, it's still got a long way to go. <laughs> Luckily, 
luckily, somewhere along the way, the whole miracle of this was that I worked out patience. And it is the miracle. My family calls it the miracle of Joanne McCarthy learning to be a patient person. <laughs> and um, there's, like, it's been 13 years, 13 years in June, and there still is not a day, and I'm including Saturday and Sunday, where I don't have something to do with institutional child and sexual abuse. It just does not stop. So, unfortunately, I find it fascinating. Like, as journalists, you have to be fascinated by human behaviour, otherwise you would just crawl into a hole and die. There was one thing I did want to tell you. The night you interviewed me, the night that the Special Commission of Inquiry report came out. On late line? Yes. That night, so the report came out, it was late in the afternoon, and I obviously had to do copy. I had 200 media trying to talk to me. Chad, my boss, who's over there, the spectacular Chad Watson, who's been an extraordinary editor through this. He really has been unbelievable. So Chad in protecting me that night. So you guys had to interview me. It was set up to be a certain time. You know, your crew came up, blah, blah. I had to speak with you. Chad had my phone and my son had rung, my eldest son. So Chad came in and said, Mitchell wants to speak to you. And then Mitchell, he said, Mum, I know how busy you are. No, I didn't, but Dad has to speak to you because his mum had just died. Uh, this is my ex-husband, Stephen. We're still quite close. Anyway, so Stephen's mum, Betty, had died under particularly tragic circumstances. And so I rang Stephen and you have the kind of phone call that you have with somebody that you've got a long history with, that you, you know, were teenagers together. So we had that phone call. And then poor Chad and Heath, the editor, they were sort of really worried about whether I was going to be up for this interview because it was very fraught because the New South Wales police had gone me, had gone Peter Fox, Peter had gone over to Bali with his wife basically because his wife Penny did not deserve to have any more shit. Somebody had to stand up and say, am I allowed to swear here? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Somebody had to say fuck you to the New South Wales police service. Yeah. And I was happy to do it. So, but Chad, Chad and Heath, and Jason, that's right, they were really worried because I was going, okay, right, this is what I've got to say, right, what, what have I got to say? And they're going, oh my bloody God, what's she going to do? And I, it's one of those things where it's like, you have to perform. And I had 10 minutes for you and you guys went over to 12 minutes. The final two minutes was shit and luckily it was cut. I had absolutely 10 minutes to do and I did it and then I just dropped off the perch. And, um, and that, that's just one, one of the, the weird and wonderful... Another time, getting back to the police, at the Commission of Inquiry, the police were assholes. And, um, and I mean, personally, they were assholes. They did everything to put me off. And it was the old Newcastle court. The media was all over one side. I was a witness, so I was over with the police. Now, I could have sat with the media, but I thought, no, fuck them. I'm going to sit over here. So... Oh, I've actually, I've actually earned a PhD in the word fuck through the last 13 years. I didn't get the honorary doctorate. They think it's for that. It's actually because of the word fuck. Anyway, the police were in two lines in the, the witness things and they used to sit in their rows and you know what big fat cops are and they... I've only got skinny legs, so I'd have to... 
And I didn't want to walk through them because they were just like this wall. So I used to walk around the front and sit up. And then there was one day they were being particularly disgusting. And I thought, fuck you. So anyway, I walked. <laughs> so they're all sitting there and I just walked up with my knees. The first copy was there. I went whack like that straight into his knees like it killed me. But he sort of went like that and he moved and then the whole rest of the line moved and I just walked through. And I was like, yes, victory. <laughs> I don't think that's... It's not exactly speaking truth to power, but I did actually win that one. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't going to be speaking back to you. That's no, they, we, we get on OK now, most of us. <laughs> I'm sure that's right. Mark Burrows. After Joanne. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I want to talk to you about barley mm -hmm. because that was that was a, a huge effort for nine. Mm. Talk me through what was involved with that. And again, I'll go to the question I asked some of the others about what necessarily the audience doesn't necessarily appreciate in terms of what's involved well i might fold a bit of that into the story um it was a sunday i got a phone call early in the morning and and everybody here would have remembered it i got a phone call saying can you get to bali really quickly because we think a gas cylinder has blown up in a nightclub and that was all it was and there was only a handful of people had been killed so we got over there and it's really weird because uh I went there with a cameraman and it's still, I still get a bit choked up about it because when I got there at the hospital and I was searching around this hospital for where all the Australians were, the Australian injured, I'd narrowed down where they were and I walked into a room accidentally and it had been about 10 hours after the bombing and I walked into a room and I looked in and I couldn't believe what I was looking at. There were about 100 bodies just completely charred and I wasn't supposed to see that and so uh, at that stage I didn't realise how many the death toll hadn't come out but this room was just it was a huge room just full of bodies the Indonesians had just put them on the white tiles so I closed the door went out started looking for um, Australian survivors and I found them and they were all getting evacuated back to Australia and um, I uh, went up to one guy who was from the central coast uh, he was badly injured, but he could talk to me and he gave me a piece of paper and he said, I'm missing my wife and two daughters. He said, can you try and find them for me? And I said, I'll do my best. You know, I was under the, under the pump. And I met him years later and he'd lost his wife and two daughters. They were killed and he didn't know it at the time. I went up to another guy, you probably remember, Peter Hughes, and asked him a few questions and he was badly burnt and his face was just blowing up with all the fluids and they got him out in the end and... I've got to become friends with him. I still know him. Now we still keep in contact. So that was day one. <laughs> that was day one. And I remember I filed that story for the Monday night's news. And we had to go to this Indonesian satellite station. And we'd cut the story. And the story was, I have to say, it was just had so much stuff in it. It was powerful. And there were problems with the machine chewing tapes. Everyone was arguing, all the other, everyone was trying to get their stuff out. We got the story out. What happened after that I could never have imagined because it went on for years. I've done more stories on Bali than any other story. It went on for about five, six years. So we did the victims, we did the 
bombers arrest, the investigation in Jamar Islamir, where we travelled all through Java. The bombers were arrested, they were tried, and I spoke to the bombers in jail, I spoke to the bombers outside jail, and I did the execution of the bombers. Then I was in the town when they brought the bodies back. So I sort of felt like I'd been through every part of it. Then I did the successive anniversaries. I don't go to the anniversaries anymore because I just feel like I've lived it too much. So huge story, hugely hard for us to cover because if anyone's worked in Indonesia, everything's against you. The language is against you. The temperature is against you. The gear breaks down. The time is a nightmare. It's a four-hour time difference. So I have to file by 2 o'clock. So you've got to get up early and... You know, all these things conspire to work against you. So very, very hard. It's just, I guess I'm giving you some, a glimpse into what it's like there. But it went on, it did go on for a long, long time. And at times I was up there for three months. We are fast running out of time, but I might get you to start this last section, Mark, with just an observation on the impact of in-depth journalism from your perspective, what impact it can bring to a country like ours, and also what you think the challenge is for the future and how that might be met. It's a big question, but whatever observation you want to bring. For us, if there isn't the ability to break stories, we don't survive. So it is just so crucial to be getting new angles, new interviews and new stories. And if we don't do that in this Google, Facebook, Twitter market, we're not going to survive. Everybody can look at the videos, the massacres, the, the interviews, the bombings on Google and Twitter. So we have to work out what we offer. And journalism, that's what separates us from these media. We can explain what you're looking at and we can then take it further with investigative journalism. The big hurdle that I find is time. I always come back to that. We never have enough time. I never have enough time to do it. It's always that time pressure. But if the bosses can give us more time and be patient with us, you can achieve a lot. And so it is, for our business, for what I do, it is crucial that more time is spent on breaking stories because we will survive, our medium will survive. Time is money. Headley, when you were accepting your Walkley last year, I recall you paid tribute to Katie Page at Harvey Norman because they funded the teacher's pet. Yeah, she's How did that <clears throat> relationship come about? Well, I think Katie Page has been a, a big advertiser across all media for a while, but she stepped into a very difficult story. A lot of advertisers are wary of true crime because it's a bit unsafe, they think. I don't think that's right. But, you know, just... Unsafe in what way? Well, I think that they are concerned about brand. And, you know, if you're dealing with a really dark story which is what this one was, involving alleged murder, alleged child sexual abuse, schoolgirls and police corruption. That's not the sort of thing that the banks are going to go, oh, beauty, that's wonderful for our brand, you know. <laughs> so, you know, that sort of Makes thing... them look good. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, all, all credit, credit to, to Katie Page for doing that. But just going back to your point about challenges, you know, as a really young reporter and through many of my reporting years, I looked up to Kerry O'Brien and so many people at the ABC, but particularly Kerry O'Brien because he was such a, a robust interviewer and ambassador of journalism. And I watched him here tonight and I really appreciate the fact that he talked about 
some of the wonderful things and terrible things that he had seen in his career, but also the challenges that we currently face. And I think at events like this, we, we tend to sometimes gloss over the really big challenges we face. And Google, Facebook, Twitter, they are destroying so much of what we try to do. And I don't want to speak too ill of the tech titans, except to say they are going to ruin so many more journalist jobs unless they step back and say they've got to support the newsrooms. They have to stop just pirating the work that we do and taking the advertisers' money. Most of the advertising dollars that are coming in for, for online media is going to the tech titans. The journalists aren't seeing it. And the funnel is getting narrower and narrower. And, and at some point, all journalists are going to have to start to push back and say, enough. If you want to destroy journalism completely, keep going the way you're going. They're unregulated. They don't have to abide by the rules we have. They can run videos, for example, you know, of what we saw in Christchurch, unchecked for a lengthy period. They escape all of the rules that we try to go by, and then they're stealing, they're eating our lunch. You know? And I think we all have relied on social media. We've all enjoyed it. We all appreciate it. I use Facebook a lot. But enough. They have to start funding, getting behind the journalism we do. Otherwise, it's going to get tougher and tougher. And more of my friends and my colleagues and your colleagues are going to lose their jobs as they compete and beat us down. And this is not just about... And this is not just about individuals losing their jobs or newsrooms shrinking. This is also about our democracy, not to put too fine a point on it. Caro's work has felled a premier, launched royal commissions, uncovered corruption. It means something that you're not going to see necessarily in a Facebook post or a Twitter 140 characters. What's your observation on all this? Agree to a certain extent, but I believe social media and platforms of Facebook and Twitter, they launch and share your material. More eyeballs see it, more people read it, more people care, more people get engaged. The chance for change grows. Pros and cons. What I'm observing now, which has deeply troubled me recently, is a new form of a war, which is really intensifying it, sort of shoot the messenger, is how I'd describe it. Journalists turning on journalists and this war that's happening at the moment to discredit somebody else's work, when what we're doing is we're just trying to get to the truth. And it's a distraction. And it takes away from what the real message is. I'm just sort of at a point where I just, I really want it to stop because it's such a distraction and it muddies the waters. There was a point for me when the Greyhound Racing Band was announced. I'll never forget it. When Premier Baird did this, I was sitting interviewing a former guard who worked at Don Dale, the detention centre in the Northern Territory. Yes, to all those critics out there, we did speak to guards and heard their stories. And my phone was going off and going off and going off. I said, what is going on? And I finally, the interview wrapped up and I picked up the phone and I realised, well, Greyhound Racing has been banned in New South Wales. My first reaction was, this is not going to make me sound very brave. I was scared. I was really scared because I knew the next wave, the next onslaught was coming. The next discrediting, shaming, the distraction. 
And of course, my phone blew up. Lots of people, lots of abuse. My address was posted online. Go and get the little C-U-N-T. Here she is. Just kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going. And I really thought, I think I want to stop. Why am I doing this? But of course, it's not about you. You're just the messenger. And the same thing then, of course, happened when we produced a story in, of the incarceration of miners in the Northern Territory. There was another huge distraction after that. When the images didn't lie, these children were being abused. There was another distraction. It was another war. And it completely took away from the actual message and the truth. So I guess where I'm at now, my point is that this shoot the messenger is it's dangerous and it's intensifying and we've got to think about how to address it in a really meaningful way because it, it ultimately harms the truth. And what I originally wanted to say is how I started this is what really deeply troubled me recently was a young journalist who's starting out. She had this great idea, this great interview, and she said, but I'm too scared of what's going to happen when I report this. You know, I don't want to be called deceptive and a, and a liar and a troublemaker and I don't want to do all that stuff, you know. Look what happened when you did that story. And I thought, oh, well, no, you know. Could journalists now be censoring themselves, the next generation, because they're frightened of the repercussions? It's a very real thing. So I think we all need to look at ourselves as to how we respond to news and the truth. Joanne. Emma. <laughs> Still here. You're not lost for words, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> What's your view on the impact of in-depth and long-form reporting and the kind of investigations that, like you, took several years and quite a lot of personal heartache in between? What's the point of it and what do you see as the challenge of it in the future? The point of it is there's... We're at a time in history when there's been such a corporatisation of a lot of what we do. We're, we're consumers now of everything. And we're seeing in royal commissions the people at the end of the food chains of those things, where they've been completely disenfranchised, where you wonder whether democracy actually exists because there's the people with power and then there's all these processes and regulators and they're not worth a bean. And then you've got the people at the end. And it does seem like there's so much of journalism now. Well, certainly, and maybe it's because of the child sexual abuse, I get a lot more of that kind of thing coming to me. We were talking about climate change in the Hunter region at the moment, well, not at the moment. For years, there's been whole communities completely destroyed because of mining and because of planning processes that don't accommodate people living in, within those mining areas. It is just almost overwhelming. As a journalist, doing that all the time, supporting communities and people who think the whole system is weighted against us. You know as a journalist, they know, as the people living in it, we have to fight. And I find a lot of the time now, it's picking yourself up from not being dispirited by where you know that just should not happen and yet it did. And so a lot of the time I find you're supporting people who are emotionally distraught. And I'm not just talking about child sexual abuse now, I'm talking about the people in the mining communities, I'm talking about the people who've been affected by the Williamtown RAF base, the contamination there, where they're completely in the right and yet they're not being dealt with as if they are in the right. And there's a lot of just 
indifference, bureaucratically, politically. So as a journalist, you have to not be dispirited because it's your job to keep doing what you're doing, to keep speaking to them, putting their stories out. I was at a thing today, the pelvic mesh scandal. Now that's a whole health system failure, full stop. Every point along the way. If I'd been speaking to you about four hours ago, I was in a puddle of like, I can't do this anymore, this is killing me. And then there was this little line and I went, yes! Like as in, and now I know where I'm going with the thing. And I think as journalists, you have to keep knowing that there's always those little yes moments to keep on doing it because you have to. Not just have to because it's our industry and, and democracy needs us, but also I find as a person to have a sense of integrity, you've got to keep going. I've got to look and find those yes moments. They're there. <laughs> Helen, in the vein of journalists versus journalists, as Carrie was saying, I would personally like to thank Alan Jones for um, doubling the sales... There's not a line you hear often. ...doubling the sales of my book um, in the week. Because, quite honestly, what could have happened in the week that Racing New South Wales decided to broadcast the Everest race on the sales of the Opera House. Peter Vlandis leaked the story to the Telegraph. It could have gone completely, other than being on the front page of the Telegraph, it could have gone unnoticed. Had he not invited Louise Heron on to his radio station, and we know what happened then. And I'd been very careful in writing the book not to take sides. My publisher, who is here tonight, Elizabeth Weiss from Allen and Unwin knew I worked very hard to not fall in the Utzon camp or the Hall camp when it comes to the arguments over the Opera House. But when it came to this one, I kind of felt I had to take a position. And that was to say I'm actually not in favour of advertising on the sales of the Opera House. The woman who actually convinced the ALP was a woman called Miss M. Napper. She was a unionist. No one knows her name. Everyone remembers all the men involved in the story. And she was forgotten. And so I wrote an opinion piece about her and said, it's a bit like Louise Heron standing up to Alan Jones in the on-air bullying. Well, I was due to go on his show that week. And I get a call from his producer saying, sorry, no, you're not coming on. And he was completely trying to silence me. And the producer told me I was too risky because I might take him on. And... I was really angry because I felt, you know what, this is just not a story about the Opera House. There's many more layers to all of this that we could see in the 300,000 signatures that were garnered within days. And I really felt, for me, it symbolised everything that the Opera House stood for, which was it's above commercial sponsorship. You can't have someone like an Alan Jones treating a woman on air like this. It's not okay. So I really felt I had to take a position. So what I did was I sat down and wrote a very politely worded email to Alan Jones directly. It was one of my finest pieces of journalism <laughs> that you'll never see. But I convinced him to let me on. And I said, it's not about what you think about the Opera House. It's not about what I think. This is above that. And if you're going to try and muzzle me just because I don't agree with you, Alan, that's not okay. And I was in the Royal Tour briefing and I get a call from Alan Jones's producer and say, you're on tomorrow. And like, sorry, Megan, you've just announced to the world that you're pregnant, but I'm going to speak to Alan Jones. And 
I'm very glad I did. So I could have easily just rolled over and not done that. And it was less about the publicity for the book. It was more about saying, you know, Alan, you don't run this city. I think everyone in this city loves that building and I'm a representative of them and that's why I went on, on air with him. Well, that's a lovely moment to end on. Can I ask you all to join me in thanking so very much our esteemed panel, Joanne McCarthy, Caro Meldrum, Hannah, Helen Pitt, Mark Burrows and Hedley Thomas. Listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com/slash/subscribe, and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the two SER studios in Sydney, Australia.